So the um, popular author and psychology researcher, Brene Brown, she often quips that there's no way to avoid day two. Uh, and that's in the context for her, I think, of doing kind of intensive workshops and trainings, um, usually a few days long. But I think day two is universal, like no matter what the program is. There's always a period in the retreat, and it's usually day two where it's just like, shit hits the fan. Not saying that's true for you all, um, just saying I've been feeling that and um, we've been sensing that. Uh, and it's not unusual. So congrats on uh, making it to the end of day two. Um, I wish I could say it's all downhill from here. There's ups and downs. So tonight I wanted to um, talk a bit about heart magic. And in particular, I'd like to talk about magic and the four immeasurables. And first, I'll start with uh, magic. Um, what is magic? And what do we mean when we're talking about magic in this context? I'm going to share um, a kind of nice definition here from my first meditation teacher, uh, whose name is Daniel Ingram. And he writes uh, about magic fairly extensively um, in a book called Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha. I hear they used to have it here in the library, but someone stole it. Terrible. As I mentioned, Daniel was my first teacher, and what I loved about his writing actually was how rational it was, how hyper-rational he was. He's like, if you do this practice, it'll lead to this result. There's these stages, there's this teaching. It all made sense to me, and I felt a lot of confidence and trust at the time. I was 19 at the time. Um, and so when he started talking about magic, I was like, what in the world is this guy talking about? And how does this square with this rational approach to Dharma? But over the years, I've come to see that, in fact, I think Daniel um, is talking about and exploring what one of my early mentors would call the transpersonal domain. And he can talk about it in a very rational way. So here's a, a rational definition of the, the transrational. He says, consciousness plus intention produces magic. Consciousness plus intention produces magic. So he goes into then describe how there are really kind of two types of magic, if you look at it this way. There's um, ordinary magic, which is like, I have the intention to move my hand and pick up this water bottle and move it up to my face and take a drink of water. Now, I know this doesn't feel like magic because we're so used to it, the fact that there can be an intention and then suddenly something happens. But in reality, this is kind of bizarre. You know? And to little babies, it's real bizarre because they haven't figured out how to quite link intention and consciousness yet. They're just kind of like, <laughs> you know. They're one with the environment in some way. So this is ordinary magic. It's like the normal things we do, like coming and meditating, eating, taking care of work, writing a symphony. Um, you know, all the things that we do that are just ordinary things where there's intention and consciousness and stuff happens. This is ordinary magic. And then there's extraordinary magic. There's the other side, which is usually what people mean by magic. 
Uh, and I think this is the area that people get most excited about and also most freaked out by, both. But I want to talk about the extraordinary in a way that is also ordinary, because I do think it, it, it's quite ordinary, these experiences where we don't really understand how our intention leads to certain results or how the world around us, the people around us, uh, somehow inexplicably end up telling us things we need to hear. One of the most ordinary kinds of extraordinary magic that I know of is the, it's the experience of sensing that someone's about to give you a, a ring or someone's about to reach out. You know? It's like, oh, I was just thinking about it. How many, how many times right, have you had that experience? And how easy is it to discount that? Even though it doesn't fit at all within the materialist framework. There's no way to understand the mechanisms for how that works, and yet it's so common. It's so incredibly common. I also recently um, had an ex experience of extraordinary magic um, about a week ago. We had just flown into Belgium a couple days earlier, and I was still very much uh, jet-lagged and, you know, getting oriented. And my, uh, we were staying with my uh, cousin, Jenna, who um, lives in Antwerp. It's very, we were very close growing up, so it's like, you know, staying with a sister. And one day we, we decided all to go out um, to eat, and we were going to go have some famous Belgian waffles. I was very excited. Uh, we got, got on the tram, started heading there, and then suddenly I was just extremely nauseous and sick. And I, I told them, I have to get off. You know, I have to walk. I'm probably jet-lagged, and well, I am jet-lagged, and this tram is like going all over the place. So I figured that was, the, that was the problem. As soon as I get off, I'll be okay. I got off, and it just kept getting worse. Like, I just, I, I could barely walk, actually. At a certain point, Emily looked over at me, and she's like, you are pale as a sheet. Like, we need to put you in a taxi and send you home. Uh, and and I, I couldn't help but agree, because even the thought of eating waffles, you know, just made, it was a terrible thought. Uh, and so I did. I got in a taxi, and I went home, and... After about an hour or so, I started to feel better, um, started to kind of relax. Or I don't, I don't know, I just I felt better. And then I got a text from my, uh, my uncle Bill, and he said, you know, uh, last night your, uh, your grandmother passed away. And then he shared with me, he said, you know, she went to bed last night around 1 a.m., and this morning uh, around 7 a.m. Eastern, she had passed. So sometime in the night she had passed. And there's two things I found really um, quite extraordinary about this. One is that the extreme illness that I felt um, coincided around the same time that she probably And it could very well be I was just jealous. I actually don't think that was the case. I think I was actually on some level I was tuned in to what was happening. Even though I didn't realize that consciously. And then the other thing that was kind of extraordinary was that, um, that it was my, um, my dad's birthday when she passed, and he had passed a few years prior. And my grandmother had Alzheimer's, advanced Alzheimer's. Like she didn't, she barely knew he had died. Like it was something that she really, in a sense, didn't cognitively, couldn't accept or didn't know. And so, uh, to me, it was amazing that she passed away on his birthday. 
you know, like, the fuck does that happen? When someone is in cog- major cognitive, they don't know. So this is, ex- to me, this is extraordinary magic. And then there's another layer to this uh, story, which is that I then called my teacher, one of my teachers, Kenneth. You know, it's great to have a Buddhist teacher when people are dying. <laughs> it's like, they, they, this, if you want to talk to anybody, talk to a Buddhist. <laughs> um, so I did. I called Kenneth. I said, hey, and I just shared what was going on. My grandmother passed away. Um, this is what happened. You know, I was feeling really sick, and I just shared what was going on. And then he, he proceeded to tell me about how his mother had passed. And it turned out that she also had had advanced Alzheimer's and that she also died on the same day of her eldest son's birth, who also died. <laughs> so at this point, I'm like, okay, I got it. I'm hearing, I'm listening. This is one of those extraordinary moments. And it's really helped me, I think, in the process of grieving, you know, to, to sense into this larger reality, you know, this magical interconnected reality that I don't claim to understand. I don't know how this works. But I don't deny that it is extraordinary. Daniel Ingram again, he shares... Magic can be looked at from two points of view. A, the ultimate, in which all that occurs is the natural, impersonal unfolding of the lawful pattern of totally interconnected causality. And B, the relative, in which each individual agent has the power to influence their field of experience, universe. So I think this is also another helpful lens that we can look at magic, what magic is. We have the ultimate view of magic and the relative. Chagyam Trungpa, a Tibetan teacher who co-founded the Naropa University, where both Emily and I worked and went to school. I think he, he, he talks about magic in a really interesting way here. And I think highlights both the relative and the ultimate view. So here's the relative view from Trungpa. He says, when you experience your wisdom and the power of things as they are, together as one, then you have access to tremendous vision and power in the world. You find that you're inherently connected to your own being. That, he says, is discovering magic. So you, ha- you have access to tremendous vision and power in the world, he says. You do. So this is the relative perspective, that you are a causal agent, that you actually have an influence in the world. And if we take the magical perspective, right, then we'd say, well, everything is connected at the level of consciousness as well, as, as well as at the level of physical stuff. You know? um, for me, I don't see these as two different things. I see them as two different dimensions of the same reality. The ultimate view now, here he says, you might think that something extraordinary will happen to you when you discover magic. Something extraordinary does happen. You simply find yourself in the realm of utter reality, complete 
and thorough reality. The ultimate, Daniel said, in which all that occurs is the natural, impersonal unfolding of the lawful pattern of totally interconnected causality. Everything is as it is. This is also magic. And this is an important way of looking at magic, I think, because it highlights a way of exploring heart magic in which we don't always have to be the one that's doing it. We don't always have to be the, the person who's making stuff happen. We could instead imagine that we are, our, our role in this is quite important. It's, the role is to let go and to trust, to release our agenda, and to trust in something perhaps that's bigger, that's more vast than our own personal preferences and agendas. And this is where the four immeasurables come in. These practices of cultivating and developing open-heartedness, of developing big mind, equanimity, big heart, loving kindness, great compassion, and great joy, empathetic joy. One way to practice magic is to cultivate this open heart and to let it do the work. Emily and I often talk about the practice of heartfulness or the approach of heartfulness meditation, which includes all of these Brahma Viharas, these four immeasurables. And the way we describe it is we say the practice of heartfulness is the practice of inclining the mind toward opening the heart. Inclining the mind toward opening the heart. And I think as we've all probably at this point discovered, isn't a linear process. There's very much uh, a cycle to this work. You know, where we open and then suddenly more stuff comes up. We work with it. In the working with it, we become more open. We have to be. And then in that newfound freedom, that newfound clarity, that newfound openness of heart, another level of shit (laughs) comes up. And this onion uh, does not seem to have an end. So as Helen Shuckman in The Course of Miracles, she says, your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you've built against it. So we're dismantling our armor, our protections in this practice. We're gradually removing the heavy shields that we've erected for good reason. And we're learning how to live nakedly, openly. And these four measurables, they provide different means, different ways that we can do this. And today I'm, I'm presenting these in a particular order and I'm using the term four immeasurables for a particular reason. Um, because in the early, earliest Buddhist tradition, these are often described as the Brahma-viharas, the divine abodes. I shared my favorite translation. My, my personal translation is the, the place where the gods love to hang and chill. It's like if you imagine a coffee shop, 
you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the God realm. You know? And you imagine the gods of loving kindness and equanimity and compassion and joy just like hanging out, you know, drinking like some really premium grade oolong or something. Then imagine what it would be like, you know? How fun would it be? How much laughter would there be? How much care? Hanging out in this coffee shop, you know, hanging out in this place of boundless uh, love feels really good. And, um, and it helps us go beyond ourselves, which is quite helpful. So uh, I want to just kind of uh, mention the order here. Uh, as I'll be using it, so that the early order, the early tradition, uh, had this particular order where they started with metta, loving-kindness, and then they moved to compassion, sympathetic joy, or mudita, and then finally they end with equanimity, upekka. And um, in a way, the goal is to become equanimous in that tradition. That is kind of one of the the biggest goals of, of the tradition, as I understand but in the, the next wave of Buddhist philosophy and teaching, um, what was called the Mahayana school, several hundred years later, they made a tweak to the order, you know, which doesn't seem like a big deal, but um, it is a big deal to change a tradition that's been you know, going for several hundred years. Uh, and what they did is they, they decided to move equanimity to the front, start with equanimity, not ending there. And the idea is that if you start with equanimity, you kind of can remove some of the, or work with some of the initial prejudices that, that we all have, and that cultivating love and joy and compassion without these kind of extra prejudices is really helpful. And, and I think here the goal isn't seen as being equanimous. If you look at this sequence, they end with joy. Interesting. So I want to run through each of these four immeasurables and just give a brief, like, sketch, you know, just a little mini sketch of, of each of these. Um, we really worked a lot today with uh, the first one, Upeka. Uh, that's the Pali term. Uh, we translated this in various ways, right, in the social meditation. Um, equanimity was one of the ways we, we talked about it, but we also talked about big mind, just kind of, um, for me, like a Zen translation of equanimity. And then finally, we talked about inclusiveness, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's preferred Translation. So what is upekka in all of its you know, different faces or facets? I want to start by talking a little bit about equanimity. One way to talk about what equanimity is is to talk about what it isn't. And what it isn't is apathy and indifference. Uh, or as Nolaway Alexander, the insight meditation teacher, says, equanimity ain't whatever. This rang true to me, too, because at one point my dad told me, whatever is your generation's, fuck you. He just observed that. I was like, that's, a, that's an astute observation, Dad. <laughs> I think you're right. Uh, actually, what I really said to him was, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Both my dad and Nolaway, you know, intuitively understood is that the sense of whatever is not equanimity. It's, n- it's not that we don't care. Um, it's just that our care is so big and so inclusive that we aren't bothered by the small stuff. And when we do get bothered, we can return. We can come back. 
we can recenter ourselves. One of my teacher's teachers, a, a Burmese monk named Saida Upandita, he talks about equanimity um, in an interesting way. He says in Burma, in Myanmar, there's, um, there is this common kind of toy. Um, it's often, I guess, kids play with it, called a bobo doll. And the idea of the bobo doll is you, you can kind of hit it, and it's got a weighted bottom, so you hit it, and it kind of pops back up. Um, and he said equanimity is like the bobo doll. You know, it's not that you don't get knocked over. It's just that you return very quickly. There's a kind of coming back. So I think this is a beautiful way of talking about what equanimity is vis-a-vis what it isn't. But what is it? What is upekka? Well, again, another translation is big mind. Big mind. Shunri Suzuki Roshi, a Japanese Zen teacher, um, famous for helping bring Soto Zen to America. In his book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, he talks at different times about big mind. One thing he said about big mind is that big mind experiences everything within itself. So one way you could know is the supekka, is, is everything included? Is everything here, present, in your awareness? Are you experiencing everything? And what, is it, what do I mean by everything? Well, everything that you could experience in this moment, is it included? He also goes on to say, whatever you do experience is an expression of big mind. So it's not just that we are sitting back, resting in this kind of open, non-space of awareness, and we're just experiencing everything within ourselves. That, that's one way it can be experienced. But it can also be experienced as everything that is arising is also it. There doesn't need to be a separation between big mind and what big mind is experiencing. And if there's no separation between you and everything that's arising, how could you be knocked? Who is the one that would be knocked? Where are you located? in that, when subject and object collapse. Thich Nhat Hanh, inclusiveness means embracing everyone, everything. You don't exclude anyone. In true love, you don't discriminate. Whether that person is white, or black, or yellow, whether he's Muslim, a Buddhist, Jew, a communist, you accept them all with no discrimination whatsoever. Inclusiveness here means non-discrimination. So this is the ultimate view, again. And I think that needs to be held with the relative as well. Because while it is true what he's saying, true love means non-discrimination, like we don't put anything outside of ourselves ultimately. It's also true from the relative point of view that we need to make wise discriminations. We need to set boundaries. We need to take care of ourselves, each other. And um, that's very important. And if we confuse those two realities, if we think that true love means going around and letting whatever anyone do whatever they want to us, that is a misunderstanding. 
And probably that'll lead to us really hating this tradition at some point and these practices. As Jack said, you know, we've got to remember our Buddha nature and our zip code, both. We've got to remember this true love that does not discriminate. And the part of us that knows when our personal boundaries have been violated. And knows when there is injustice in the world. And knows that it is actually not okay to do nothing at times. So we need to actually speak up or to set a boundary to, to, make, to make some kind of action. But that boundary setting and that action making can really be served and aided by an awareness of this true love. Someone asked Sharon Salzberg once, what, like, what would you do? How would you approach, um, you know, if you were like standing around and someone tried to like steal, you know, you're like standing in a public bus depot and someone tried to like steal your back. And she said, I would hit them with all of the loving kindness that I could muster. <laughs> Which is probably a lot. <laughs> Which, uh, this is a great segue into talking about Meta because Sharon Salzberg, I think she's speaks about and teaches on this um, in such a clear way. Metta here could be translated as big heart. So we have big mind and big heart. Or loving kindness. Or loving awareness. Loving friendliness. Benevolence. These are all different ways of translating in English the term (coughs) metta. Sharon describes it this way. She says, metta is the ability to embrace all parts of ourselves, as well as all parts of the world. Practicing metta illuminates our inner integrity because it relieves us of the need to deny different aspects of ourselves. We can open to everything with the healing force of love. When we feel love, our mind is expansive and open enough to include the entirety of life in full awareness. Both its pleasures and its pains, we feel neither betrayed by pain nor overcome by it. And thus we can contact that which is undamaged within us regardless of the situation. I love how she describes that that part of us that is undamaged. Or as the Dzogchen teacher, Lama Lena, says, that part of us that's unfuck-upable. That we just can't mess up. <laughs> and it's pretty radical, too, I think, what she says, of accepting not just all parts of ourselves, but all parts of the world. The Dalai Lama, in talking about the next immeasurable compassion, he said it similarly. He said, compassion is the radicalism of our time. To be able to open to the suffering the world of each other, ourselves, and to actually embrace that, and to embrace all of it, and to, to actually care for and respond to it, that's pretty radical. 
Wao Go Chan Master in a book called Silent Illumination, he says in Buddhism, when intrinsic awakening is experientially realized, it's called selfless wisdom or prajna. Because this wisdom operates freely, without self-referential obstructions, it responds skillfully to the needs of sentient beings. This is called great compassion. Great compassion. Karuna. What is compassion? For me, um, I really got on the Buddhist path, right? I didn't get on the Buddhist path, but I realized that something about the Buddhist path was fundamentally true. Uh, When I had an experience in college uh, of participating in this large, these large group awareness trainings, Um, landmark forum is kind of an example of this, Um, but it's a basic approach that was developed in the '70s in the human potential movement by this guy Werner Erhard. And he just basically took and mashed up all these different transformative techniques and then threw them together in an intensive weekend that had really questionable, like, <laughs> boundaries and, like, <laughs> anyway. And it was basically a multi-level marketing system. But there was some really valuable stuff in it, and it really opened me up. Um, this was my first introduction, in a way, a reintroduction to consciousness, and, and also how I met Emily. So very grateful for it. But in that um, training, there was a particular weekend, um, this weekend intensive, where we were all getting together and we were, you know, we were trying to save our friends, basically. We were all like, we've got to get people into this thing to save them. And, and I think looking back, like that was a very myopic way of thinking. But the intention was sincere. You know, like I really did care about people and I really did want to support them. So during this weekend, there's a sort of, in, sort of this intensive process and we were going and doing all these exercises and going and talking to friends and trying to get them to sign up to the, to the training. And um, it did actually stretch me uh, quite far, part, partially because I wasn't sleeping that much and because of all these intense experiences. But then at the end of the training, I found myself sitting in the room and then they started to play this sort of uh, recording And it was kind of a a mix of different voices. You know, you heard Martin Luther King's I Had a Dream speech, was sort of weaving in and out of that. And then there's, you know, kind of um, different kinds of snippets um, from, for instance, like people that were reporting on their experience of war, but in a kind of profound existential way that makes you really think. And in this process, I just found myself like melting, dissolving, opening, And I suddenly found myself all of a sudden identifying with this idea, this image of being like a a soldier. Um, And in particular, being a soldier in like a trench warfare kind of situation. You know, and I I started to really imagine in very detail, like what it would feel like cold and wet, rats and bullets and fear, anxiety. I started just kind of more and more going into this very vivid, imaginal uh, scenario. And I started to really feel like I was that, like I was actually in this situation. And then suddenly it expanded and it started to include more of the people who were, were like on my side, you know, in the trenches with me. And it was like suddenly I wasn't just this one person. I was like all of these people. And, and I was feeling 
all of this sort of collective fear and collective like angst and aggression. And then suddenly it was like expanded even further. I wasn't just the people in the, in the trench. I was also like the people giving them orders and the, the medical staff and the food support and all the stuff that made this kind of war machine go. You know, and the people that were back home that were feeling like, oh, we need this, you know, we need to be protected. Suddenly just including more and more uh, of, of this sort of collective identity. And then eventually it kind of broke through, you know, across no man's land. And suddenly I wasn't just this side. I was also like the other side. And it just kept going and getting bigger to the point where I started to feel like I was all of the suffering and the confusion and the deluded, aggressive, you know, <laughs> just crazy stuff that humans do. I was all of that. Um, and it was so intense. I was, at this point, I was just bawling and bawling and bawling, like racked with sobs. And I thought at a certain point, like, I can't handle anymore. Like, I can't take a single drop more of suffering. I will die. And in that very moment, just after that thought, there suddenly arose from the base of my being, from the base of the spine, this groundless space, a quivering, hearted, open, spiraling response to the suffering. This great compassion arose to meet it. And it was so clear in that moment, this is not mine. Like, I just got blown open by the suffering, you know? And, and here is this compassion that can somehow meet it perfectly, hold it completely, is equal to it. And that experience just, it completely transformed my life. It completely changed my view of who I was and what I was doing and why I was alive. And it set me on a path, you know, it set me on a search to find what was that? At this point, I didn't have actually a background in Buddhist philosophy or practice, very little exposure. But when I did start to read up on it and I heard them talking about wisdom and compassion, I was like, oh yeah, that's, that's, that's what that was. They know what they're talking about. And so I found that that was, um, that's what allowed me to trust the path because I'd had my own experience of it. And for weeks after that, I was walking around without, it's the same sense of self. Like I, I had dissolved in that experience. And of course, I reconfigured, <laughs> reconstituted. As, as often happens after a big uh, breakthrough moments. And then I was really screwed. <laughs> I was really like, oh, I need to go on retreats, and I, I shouldn't be doing this computer engineering degree. I need to drop out and go meditate full time. You know, so I caused a whole lot of other problems for myself by doing this, but uh, it was totally worth it in the, in, the, in the long haul. Great compassion. It's this tender-hearted response to the suffering of ourselves and the world, this capacity to respond. And then the final immeasurable here is, um, in the Pali language, it's called mudita, often translated as empathetic joy or sympathetic joy. Also like the term great joy. Sharon Salzberg, again, she describes mudita this way. She says, sympathetic joy is the realization that others' happiness is inseparable. 
we rejoice in the joy of others and are not threatened by another's success. Yeah, that's, that's a high bar, I think. <laughs> right? I mean, if we get real, I think um, that's a high bar to not be threatened by another's success. Right? How often do we feel those twinges of FOMO? You know, when we see someone who's doing well, and we feel like, ah, I'm scared I'm going to miss out. Maybe there isn't enough to go around. That sense of not enough, you know, that Emily mentioned. So instead, this mudita quality, instead of contracting against the happiness of others, of feeling scared that we're not going to get ours, the mudita response is to recognize the joy in others and to be delighted for others. Um, And in that delight, we are indeed sharing in joy. It is empathetic. And by being happy for others, we are happy. And we don't have to make such a strong distinction between self and other in this case. Sing Sing Ming, Zen teacher, in Verses on the Faith Mind, he describes reality this way. He says, it's neither self nor other than self, the non-dual. Neither self nor other than self. So if we're living in that great joy, in a moment of being great joy, we don't feel threatened by the happiness of others. Consciousness plus intention produces magic. So going back to that with the four immeasurables in mind, inclining the mind toward big mind, big heart, great compassion, and great joy. If we have that intention to develop these qualities, these capacities, and we consciously work with that, as in over and over again, then this produces magical effects, both in the realm of the ordinary, right? I remember... uh, Many years ago, we were living in Colorado, and I'd just gotten a nice new camera. And uh, Emily's best friend was over, and she was taking a look at it and was kind of admiring it. And then she all of a sudden accidentally dropped it right on the lens. (laughs) And I remember I just didn't bother me at all. I wasn't ruffled. I was just like, okay. And she was like, oh, my God. I'm so sorry. She was freaking out. I was just like, it's okay. It's like, I can get a new one. No big deal. <laughs> she, she was just shocked that, that that was my response. And that, I think that was a moment where the, the results and the fruit of the practice just kind of made themselves known. I may have also had an, maybe an unhealthy level of detachment from things at the time. I'll also admit that. I was at the time wearing like a pair of pants that had a hole in them that went basically from here to here. <laughs> and I'd go sit in the meditation hall with like knees. <laughs> anyway, just to give you some context. 
I, was, I felt like it was like a monk's robe. I just grabbed my flap and put it over the knee. <laughs> but it's true. Consciousness plus intention produces magic. And there are these ordinary moments, right? Like think about your own practice where you've had these moments where suddenly you just responded in a way that you could have never imagined, you know, X number of years ago. And it's just like, oh my gosh. And it's and, and those moments is spontaneous, right? It's not something like we plan to do or we try to do. It's particularly noticeable when it just happens. It's the fruit of the practice, just there for us when we need it. And then perhaps, too, there are these extraordinary magical effects. When we cultivate loving awareness, when we cultivate metta, in the early Buddhist tradition, they talk about these extraordinary effects. You know, they, they, when they're trying to really kind of sell you on the benefits of these practices, you know, they say, if you do metta, you know, animals will love you. And non-human beings will love you. And you'll sleep better. Yeah, yeah. That's also been confirmed by uh, contemporary science. But there's some, there's some amazing things that are described in the, in the text. And if you look at it you know, in a kind of skeptical way and say, oh, that's all a bunch of mythical nonsense, I think we miss an opportunity as practitioners to re-enchant our own lives, to step out of a very common disenchanted malaise that hangs over modern societies. And when we start to see everything as material, we lose the magic. Um, now, there's a lot we gain, you know, in terms of our understanding of the material. Don't want to deny that. It's not either or. It's just saying, like, maybe we've thrown out some stuff with the bathwater. Uh, and that maybe there's a, it could be useful to retrieve, um, to go back through these traditions and say, well, what if, what if they're right? What if it is possible to develop capacities that seem super ordinary? Uh, what if you could actually read the minds of others? I had an experience of this on retreat one time. It, it totally was crazy. I was sitting there on a two-month retreat, sitting silent, still. My body was completely still. My mind, nothing happening. Just present. And that there's a teacher in the front giving a Dharma talk. And I don't remember what she said and what I heard. Uh, I just remember hearing clearly in my mind's ear her voice speaking, clear, whole sentences. And then about five second delay gap, there she said the same exact words. And I just sat there, recognizing it. You know, at the moment I was I was equanimous. I wasn't reacting to it. It was just happening. And afterwards, I went, wow, that was bizarre. But I never forgot it. I never forgot that experience. And I, I don't have that experience all the time, but, but I have noticed that that's one of the qualities or capacities that's come online for me more and more as I practice, is I have um, a capacity to tune into the minds of others. And it's probably because I think a lot. <laughs> um, and I've noticed this with other practitioners, that each one of us, we have our own kind of natural proclivities, our natural capacities. 
And when we practice and we deepen and we become more attuned, it's like those grow. They become kind of extraordinary. And so each of us has uh, this potential, I think, to be really develop an extraordinary capacity to what? To live in tune, attunement with reality, to know it, to become intimate with it, to interbe. Part of how I think about magic, I, li- I like this model from physics, the wave-particle duality. And no, I'm not going to say they're the same thing, <laughs> okay, uh, in case you're worried about that. Uh, I think it's an analogy. It's a metaphor that I think actually applies across domains. Precisely because at every scale of life, there is one and many. At the atomic scale, there's... There are atoms that are distinct, and there are many atoms that are interconnected. Same at the molecular level. Same, I'll claim, at the human level. You know, we can't live in total isolation um, as human beings without any connection or care. Um, we arise as a collective. We interbe. And for me, this analogy of the wave and particle duality in physics that describes how bizarre things are and paying attention and observing empirically the scale of physical reality is that these photons, light, appears to be both a particle, as in it has a particular location in space and time that we can predict, and it also appears to be a wave, a spread out potential of possibilities that doesn't actually particularize until it is observed until we actually measure it. So that there is this very interesting relationship between the observer and the observed. When there's an observer, there's an observed. When there isn't, there's just potential. And I think the magic, the extraordinary magic, often it's, it's, it's happening at the level of the wave, wave mode. You know, when, when we are not particularized, we are kind of open. This is my thesis. We're open to the infinite potential that is. And we're attuned with what's emerging, what's arising in this moment. As it's coming into form, as it's becoming, as it's being, in that process of moving from the universal to the personal and back. And if we're riding that wave of the wave becoming the particle, then we can, in some instances, I think, tune into a layer of information that most people are not aware of because they're stuck in particle. They think that they are this being and this enclosed in this sack of skin and meat bones and that this is all of who I am. And when we think that way, we cannot see the wave because we are a particular aspect of what's arising. And so for me, I find this a very helpful model for kind of at least explaining to my rational mind, like, oh, this is how you can understand why this works. You know, it's not unlike other things. You know, there's, there's these two modes, these two, these two ways, the ultimate and the relative.
After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.